get together this, this first day of the year to be reminded of your goodness, to be reminded that you are the God who leads us into this New Year's. And we pray that uh, we will be ever attentive to that truth, that we will seek the truth that is uh, from your spirit by way of the inspired word that uh, you have allowed us to have in the form of a Bible. Help us to rely and depend upon that and the, the Holy Spirit's illumination of that truth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we are in the book, Do You Believe? Twelve Historic Doctrines to Change Your Everyday Life by Paul Tripp. This is the doctrine of sin in everyday life, um, part three. So we did uh, two weeks of the doctrine itself and three weeks in the doctrine of the uh, sin in everyday life. Um, this last one really is a, a wrap-up. I actually think I only have two questions here. I do. Um, and so most of it will just allow some time in the end for us to give any input about uh, this particular doctrine of sin that maybe you have uh, been blessed by or you, you've been, it's been helpful to reemphasize something that you have forgotten or not been uh, emphasizing in your own life. Um, so with that, let's go ahead and get started. Uh, sin is the complicating factor in all our relationships. Mark, are you, uh, Mark is getting loaded up there. We called him in the law enforcement. He's loading up his speed loaders. Going to be ready to fire off his bullets. Speed loaders. There you go. Did you have? Were you? Did you start with automatics or, or, or revolvers? Speed loaders at the prison. Automatics when you got on the PD. So there you go. For those that don't know that uh, about law enforcement perspective, there you go. <laughs> go ahead, Mark. Why is it that none of us has ever had a relationship that hasn't disappointed us in some way? Why is it that the places where we have experienced the deepest of human love are also the places where we experience the most stinging hurt? Mm. Why is it that there are so many misunderstandings and so much conflict in our relationships? Why do we get so impatient with or so irritated by the people we say we love? Why do human relationships become dark, violent, and abusive? Why do we have such a hard time getting along? No passage more directly addresses these questions than James 4, 1 to 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you don't have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Mark, can I pause you right there? I'm going to ask. We'll see how many of you have been uh, in my closer circle because this particular uh, pericope, this particular passage, this grouping of um, Scripture, um, if you've heard me at all give any type of counsel, I almost always land on this. I'm going to start a phrase and see if anyone can end this phrase, and it'll tell you if I've shared this with you before, because there's a, there's a biblical truth of these uh, four verses of James 4, 1 through 4. To sum up these four verses, as it relates to sin, it starts like this, I do what I do because I, anybody, can, anybody mark, you might have to uh, chase it with this. Anybody know how to follow, end that? I do what I do because I... Cynthia, thank goodness my wife knows. She's been around me long enough. 
want what I want. Because I want what I want. That's what James is saying in these verses. I do what I do because I want what I want. So when we sin, we need to look at this particular passage and be reminded that, wait a second, no matter how much I was provoked to sin, I do what I do because I want what I want. And so it's just, a, it's just a healthy reminder. Let's go ahead and continue on there, Carol. I think you've got the next paragraph. Yes. Think about what James is telling us. Our relationships are made difficult and become, and become conflictual because of our sinful passions or desires. And Paul argues in 2 Corinthians 5.15 that Jesus came so that those who live might no longer live for themselves. The DNA of sin is selfishness. It causes us to make life all about our wants, our desires, and our feelings. These selfish desires battle with God for rulership of our hearts. I want something, but you are in the way of it. So I am instantly angry with you. When selfish desires rule our hearts, conflicts always results, result. Those conflicts are deeper than poor communication, gender, differences in life experiences, race, unspoken expectations, age, or culture. It is sin that sets these relationships complicating factors on fire. Mm. On fire. Hmm. Why do we get angry in traffic? Why do we get upset when someone disagrees with us? Why does it make us mad when someone makes us wait? Why do our children irritate us? Why does conflict mar our holiday and family gatherings? Why do children fight on the, play- on the playground? Why do bosses speak disrespectfully? To their, co- or to their workers, and workers get angry with one another? Why do we fight over parking spaces? Why do husbands and wives quarrel? Why do neighbors find it hard to live at peace with one another? All right. All of these questions are answered by the brilliance of James, James's sin-heart analysis here. But he goes even deeper. He says, you adulterous people. Why does James begin to talk about adultery? Is he changing the subject? No. James is helping us to understand that sinful human conflict is rooted in spiritual adultery. Sin turns our hearts upside down. Instead of loving people and using the things in our lives as a means of expressing that love, sin causes us to love things and use people to get them. Only those people who keep the, the first great command will ever keep the second. All right, let me jump in there, uh, Sean. Yep. He said something there that um, was slow in my life for me perceiving. And he says this, and this is why I made a question of it, and I want to see if anybody else happens to have had a similar situation. Instead of loving people and using the things in our lives as a means of expressing that love, here's the key. This is the thing that knocked me back. Sin causes us to love things and use people to get them. There is almost no relationship that I have in categories of relationship that when I was confronted with this truth, that I couldn't find an example of this in my own life as a Christian. 
This isn't pre-Christian. This is me learning and going through the process of sanctification. So the, uh, uh, when you find out that you're unhappy in the beginning part of your marriage, you think it's the wife that is failing to do something or the spouse that's failing to do. If they would only do X, Y, or Z, this marriage would be better. And then you realize very quickly that, oh, I'm using them to get my definition of what happiness is. I can think of it as a, uh, a young man in the institution that I, I made a career out of. I can remember that uh, you know, somebody was missing from the team and I needed that person. In order to work as a team on this particular, in this unit, you needed six people. If you didn't have six people, the team was very, uh, much less effective. And that per- one person was gone. And uh, that person was gone for two, three months. And I remember getting frustrated. And interesting enough, he uses anger. Anger is, for, I can tell you in my life, and I've seen it in other people's lives, is the number one indicator that something is wrong inside of me. Not... not necessarily saying that's with you, but certainly for me. And what I realized, and in fact, this person pointed out to me because I finally went to this person and gave them the hard sell and said, hey, look, you've been gone your two or three months. We're in desperate need. We've been patient. You need to get your rear back here in, in work so we can get back and get productive. And the person says to me, didn't even realize it. Do you realize you rarely ever ask how I'm doing? And they were gone uh, because of a medical issue. And I thought, wow. There's an example. I'm using this person to get what I need. And how do I know I'm using them? Because I'm angry that they're not there. They're keeping me from getting to what I want to get. That is, and it was a good thing. But ultimately, I saw them as a, just a tool, uh, an object to be used to get what was necessary in my mind. And so the question I pose you here is, have you ever been disgusted by your use of a person to get the things you want? And maybe we just leave it as a rhetorical and you guys ponder that and see if I'm not the only one in this room that has ever used people. And you realize, and it's it's one thing to use something, you know, you use a tool, you break it, you got to replace it, you feel bad, you got, you, 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 if you borrowed it, you feel bad that you broke somebody's tool and you got to get them a new one, and you get, there's a cost involved. Yeah, that has some type of uh, an effect on us. But when it's a human being and it's a relationship, it feels disgusting. If you really stop to slow down, there's a, really? I'm just using this person? I never thought about it that way. And then hopefully that helps us go, man, I can't do that anymore. That's wrong. That's, that's, uh, uh, that's just yucky. That's just, I don't like wearing that. That's not who I'm called to be as a Christian. And I didn't realize I was doing it. Any, anybody want to comment? Cindy, you've got a comment? So the DeBenedettos are laying out their souls about how terrible we are about using people. <laughs> um, I, just to affirm what you're saying, the the grossness of it in the, in the sense that's because we dishonor God. He, his, we're not fulfilling the great commandment. And it's just, uh, it should feel gross because it dishonors the Lord. That's a godly <laughs> response. No, I, I, I agree. But we don't get it sometimes. I can even remember as a young parent with my two oldest sons 
you know, your, your first children get the rough you. God bless. I mean, you got to pray for those first children. Some of that roughness, Lord, have mercy on them. I really was wrong about it. And, you know, my interaction with them. My first two in particular were, were, you may not have known this, but God created them to make me look good. They had to be polite because I needed, the, I needed the, the, the compliments of your children are so well behaved. Do you hear the using in that? Do you hear how, how backwards that is? I mean, it's just amazing. I, I'm, I'm being a little harsh on myself. It wasn't always that way. But when you get it and you have somebody helping you get it when you don't see it, it makes you go, oh, my gosh, I don't want to have that relationship with this person. I don't want to be the, the one who uses. Anybody else? Well, I was just thinking that, <clears throat> sadly, it's easy as parents to manipulate our children because they're easily manipulated, and that's just wrong and, like you said, disgusting. Yeah, yeah. That's good, Mark. I mean, because we have a position of authority. Their young, tender hearts are still able to be directed, influenced by us, and we'll use it so that for our advantage, so to speak. PJ? Yeah, I was just going to point uh, this out, I think, in <clears throat> relation to lust specifically. Um, I think people can oftentimes uh, think, you know, uh, fantasies are harmless or, or maybe even think, well, you know, what's the harm of pornography? I'm not actually doing something to someone. Yeah, Jesus said it's like I'm having sex with that person or committing adultery, but really there's a difference. And, and the reality is when you're lusting after, after someone, you are taking another human and mm. using them as an object to fulfill your desires and um, really stripping away at what is the image of God in them. And instead, they're just another object, another tool, another widget to fulfill feelings. And, um, and so I think when, when <clears throat> I think of it that way, it just feels more egregious to me, like the idea of lust, when it's this I'm just using you. You're, you're, you're nothing. You could be a mound of dirt. And I'm using you because of not who you are, any of that, but just solely to get what I want, which may be some kind of sexual rise in the moment of, of fantasy or it might be something greater than that. But um, I think when I think of lust in particular, that's where it's just so clear you're using another human to get what you want in a moment of meaninglessness like it's just so worthless what that is in that moment so um anyway that's what i tend to think about when i think about using others interesting rob boy really good points um when you've been used and you get angry about it mm. and then you feel guilty for being angry about being used that's the one that kind of puts me in the death spiral that's hard to get out of. That's good. So we've, we've all been used. And so, Rob, I'm, I'm going to kind of step to the side for a second, but we can use that feeling of being used to remind us at least not to traffic in the slavery of others, not sexual trafficking, but the slavery. You're just an object for me to get what I want, whatever that is, and we will, we will less likely to do that. And maybe, you know, that, that's, a, that's a great lesson to learn. It is difficult, the injustice. We take that so deep word, 
in, into our, our being when we have been used. I mean, the offense, the violation is, it cuts deep. And so when you say death spiral, I can, I can definitely relate to that. Uh, meaning that there is an, 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 an emotional cut that cuts deeper sometimes than, the, than actually a physical wound, that which will heal quickly. That's, I appreciate the, you uh, sharing that, uh, Rob Roy. Well, let's uh, continue on. James is arguing if we're ever going to experience peace in our relationships, we must fix them vertically or they'll never get fixed horizontally. Vertical confession has the power to produce horizontal peace, and for that we need help. Sin's relational havoc is another powerful argument for our constant need for the rescuing intervention of divine grace. Because of sin, life is war. I am afraid that many Christians have forgotten where they live. No, I don't mean that their cognitive abilities are failing, but that they live with a functional amnesia when it comes to what the Bible says about life between the already and the not yet. Here is how Paul characterizes the address where we live. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of, of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have, been, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this, we, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Whoever's reading next, sorry about the tight uh, staple marks up in the corner. Because of the destructive power of sin, the world we live in is groaning, crying out for redemption. Notice the three descriptive phrases Paul uses to describe the present state of our world. Subject to fertility, in bondage to corruption or decay, and in the pains of childbirth. Because of the widespread damage of sin at every level of human culture and every part of physical creation, this world cannot operate as the Creator intended. Our environment is in the middle of a great spiritual struggle that only the Redeemer can solve, a great war rages that only the Savior can win. In the meantime, the world, in pain, groans. Sometimes the spiritual war is a deeply personal battle. Um, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. So I find 
it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law in my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. What wretched... Sorry about the what. Mm. Wretched man that I am, Mm. who will deliver me from the body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Romans 7, 14 through 25. Paul's humble confession is an honest description of the war that often rages within us between our conversion and our homecoming. Notice that he uses war language to categorize the struggle between delighting in God's law and the evil that lies close at hand. This war will not completely cease until the king puts the last enemy under his feet. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 26. Sometimes this war is everywhere around you, in the relationships and institutions of your daily life. Ephesians is very helpful here. After Paul has done a wonderful examination and explanation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he then turns to help the Ephesian believers to understand what it means to live in light of the gospel he has just laid out. For Paul, the gospel reshapes the way you approach your church, your thinking, your desires, your communication, your anger, your work, your relationships, your sexuality, your marriage, your parenting, and more. He writes to help his readers to see the wide-ranging impact of the gospel on the situations, locations, relationships, and institutions of their daily lives. Then in chapter 6, he calls the Ephesian believers to be ready, armed for spiritual war. It's interesting, as before we get to reading it, Paul's going to emphasize an evil component or the evil one's influence behind it. We are in the, the age of reason, unfortunately, still. And what I mean by that is we reason away the spiritual in this age of reason. Rather than using reason for, as a God-given gift to reason through and uh, bring about good in this world, we use reason to remove God and the, and the spiritual uh, connection of, he- of earth to heaven. Let's continue on and listen to what Paul sums up as the ultimate influence. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and the shoes, and as shoes on your, on, for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all righteousness, where am I at? There I go. Oh, wait. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplications for all the saints, and also for me. The word may be given... For me, the words may be given 
me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am the ambassador in chains and that I may declare in declare it boldly as I ought to speak mm. Ephesians 6 10 through 20 after all of his practical gospel instruction it seems as if Paul is changing the subject but he isn't rather he is helping his readers to understand that you cannot live in your marriage your parenting your work your church your neighborhood your school your extended family or your country with the luxury of a peacetime mentality peace is coming it has been guaranteed by grace but right now we are living in a spiritual war zone this does not mean that you should be you should have a negative relationship with the people in your life or an adversarial attitude toward the culture and institutions around you. The gospel calls you to love, to lovingly, to loving, patient, gentle, kind, forgiving, joyful, and self-controlled living right here, right now, in the place where God has put you. Our battle is not with or against people, but against the devil and the spiritual forces of evil that wage war against God, his kingdom, his church, and his people. Rather than changing the subject, Ephesians 6, 10 through 20 is Paul's summary of all the practical applications of the gospel he has just made. He wants his reader to understand that what makes gospel living both important and a constant struggle is that every situation and relationship where the gospel needs to be lived out is also a location of a great spiritual uh, conflict. The entrance of sin into the world did not ignite a legacy of peace and harmony, but rather a daily drama, deceit, and destruction of spiritual war. Uh, This war is splashed across the pages of scripture from Genesis 3 through Revelation. It is important Thank you, Isaac. Yes, in the midst of this great spiritual, where are we at? We're here, right? It's important to understand that they're children. Where? It is important. It is important to understand that you bring your children into a world that is a spiritual war zone. Your marriage is a spiritual battleground. Your church life is made messy because of this spiritual war. Spiritual wars take place at your work. Nothing escapes this great conflict between light and darkness, between good and evil, between God and the devil. This war explains why so many things in our lives are complicated and difficult. And it explains why we should live with eyes open and hearts engaged. Imagine how much easier our lives would be if this war were not raging in us and all around us. It's important to understand that sin is not just a matter of your heart and your behavior, but it's also a war. And therefore, we must be ready, armed with the gospel, and resting in the presence and the power of our captain, Jesus. Let me yes, jump in here real quick. in the midst Gary, of this... Gary, let me jump in there real quick. You might be tempted to think, because we're in what we call a church, which is church is actually the people, not the building, but if we allow the, the, under, the context of thinking about this gymnasium as a church, 
that's probably the institution that you most overlook about thinking that the spiritual war comes or is in here. And you go, well, no, no, no. I mean, this is church. This is sacred. There's, no. We walk in the door with the spiritual battle raging in us. So the church, who is us, brings that into the church. We have to be reminded of that. Don't get uh, into a place where, where the, we stop fighting the battle of unity in Christ because we think it's somewhere out there is the problem. Because we walked into the building because we're interacting with one another and relating with one another. The spiritual warfare is going on even in the church. We have got to not get passive. Go ahead, Gary. Yes, in the midst of this great spiritual war, we don't need to panic because our Savior is a victor. He is now reigning as the reigning victor. He is putting his enemies under his feet. This means we don't battle alone or in our own wisdom and strength. He battles on our behalf, and he will not stop until the last enemy is defeated. If you're married, your, pri- your primary enemy is never your spouse. It is, if you're a parent, the primary en- enemy is, not, is never your children. If you're a child, your primary en- enemy is not your parents, your friends, fellow workers, or neighbors are not your primary enemy. Your culture or government is not your primary foe. Paul says it clearly. We don't battle against the flesh and blood, but against evil forces in dark places. Whether it is the war within or the war going or raging around you, you can be thankful that your Savior King is up to the battle and he will win. And until we, until then, we put on the gospel armor, pray for guardian grace, and celebrate the presence, the power, and the promises of Jesus. Thank you, A.W. So the question that I pose is, what step, and, I, and they're listed out there, there's five of them. I've confirmed, Pastor Pete, there's five of them. <clears throat> Which step are you most likely to forget in battling sin? Why do you suppose that is? So is there any particular of the five that you're most prone to overlook, whether it's uh, put on the gospel armor, pray for guardian grace, Celebrate the presence, God's presence with us. In fact, we're going to talk about that today in the, in the sermon. God's power and the promises of Jesus. Anybody want to share which one you're most likely to overlook, forget, and march out into your day lacking one of those? Oh, here we go. Sean's got it. I think it just could be diff- it can be difficult to remember um, to put on the various components of the gospel armor. You know? mm. We might turn to one or two, but do we do we think about all of them and how you know if we're going to really be ready um, for battle that day? We need to you know we need to clothe ourselves fully in the armor of God, um, and uh, yeah, it's That's basically good. all I want to appreciate say. it. Gary's got one, PJ's got one, Gerald's got one. We're like uh, the popcorn in the pan. It's starting to pop now. I feel like uh, most of my Christian life, I 
did not identify with the power of Jesus and mm. his sovereignty, the fact that he's building his church, even when I don't see it, um, just remembering that he's in the outcome business and I'm not, mm. <laughs> I don't, you know, it's, he's the, he's the, he's the sovereign. I'm not. So that's been a, a kind of a discovery just recently for me. That's great. Thank you, Gerald. I think uh, uh, Paul Tripp does a great job in just reminding us of how subtle your sin is. It's like a spider web. You know, it just simply uh, just grows and grows. And there are, if we're not committing the big ones like murder or lying or stealing, we, sometimes I think I'm not sinning. But Paul, uh, Paul Tripp points out that there are the subtleties in sin that we forget. And I, I'm, I'm really appreciative of, of this study that reminds me that, that, that each day I just need to get on my knees and confess my sins. I, uh, I think what I'd want to more heavily state in, in these things is when I think of the <clears throat> armor, armor is a naturally... <clears throat> defensive item, and yet in the description of the armor, we're given a sword, and um, I was just talking to uh, Gerald about this beforehand, where a lot of times there's this, like, hunker down and survive mentality uh, as Christians, especially when we talk about perseverance in this this um, spiritual warfare, but to me, kind of the, the thing I think of when I think of, like, garden imagery, for example, it's one thing to say, okay, I'm going to go sleep in the wilderness in this tent and survive. I'm just going to survive. Don't step on toes. Don't just survive. And it's another to say, no, I'm going to clear the brush. I'm going to plant a field. I'm going to grow. I'm going to start to work in the garden. And I, I think that proactive, not just shielding yourself and protecting yourself, but being ready to actually step forward and go to war. And I think of um, Jude. It says uh, in verse 17, but you remember beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Um, so up to that point, it's, you know, you're waiting um, for this, uh, you're waiting for the return of Jesus. And then it says, and have mercy on those who, who doubt, save others by snatching them out of the fire to show mercy with fear and hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So I, I just think of um, this idea of like saving others from the warfare. And it's not a warfare of just attrition and survival. It's a war where we will win. We have the Holy Spirit. Like, let's go to war. Let's fight. Like, I'm ready to fight. And it's just this proactive mindset that I need to proactively fight the sin that is going to try to ensnare me. I'm going to proactively fight Satan who's trying to ensnare me. And I need to grab others who are laying down on the battlefield and keep them from mm. getting dragged into this, mm. taken down into the fire. So there's just the, um, perhaps the youthful exuberance to go pick a fight with the adversary. <laughs> uh, um, and I don't just want to, you know, play defense all day. That's good. 
Dennis and Rob Roy. At the risk of oversimplifying it, as I was looking at, you know, which number to pick out of the, the five, um, I, for me, I think the biggest point is what comes before it, which is we don't battle against.